Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. Within every man and woman that has ever existed upon planet Earth, there is this innate craving for stability. Sin has caused the entire planet and all of us who live upon this planet to become discombobulated and disjointed and unstable. Hence our grasping and our pursuit and our chase after a truth, a philosophy, a doctrine, a tribe, a method, a formula, an institution, a denomination for the purpose of stability. Essentially, all of us believe that if I can only learn this lesson or grasp this truth or understand this principle or go here, do this, give that, sacrifice this, then somehow my life will become stable. This is then something that many of us want from God. And rightfully so, God as our Father, God in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, God wants to be the stabilizing factor within us. And now I want to ask the question for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us who are filled, baptized, and immersed in the Holy Spirit, and we now live in the Spirit and we walk in Him, how do we take a hold of the stability that Almighty God wants to give us? That's the issue I want to address. Do I just memorize more Bible verses? Do I attend more Christian gatherings and conferences? Do I give more money? Do I fast? What's it going to take to stabilize my person? Even though I live in a discombobulated world, Nevertheless, how can I, as an individual man and woman, a son and daughter of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, how can I experience stability in the midst of so much mayhem and chaos on planet Earth? Come with me and let's, in the next two messages, explore this issue of spiritual stability and the cause, God's way to bring me into this stability. God does not want to play games with you, nor does He want to be excessively philosophical or theoretical with you. God wants to be genuine, authentic, 
And in the Greek word, we, uh, Greek language, we have the word Alicia. God wants to be truthful to you. That is reality. Now, why do we have a New Testament? Why do we have an explosion of a group of people in the name of Christ? Not because it was the latest, greatest theory or philosophy, but because they actually experienced Christ. They actually experienced the Holy Spirit. They actually experienced God. They didn't go give their life in a stadium uh, to the lions with their heads being chopped off and their bodies crucified and burned at the stake for some theory, for some philosophy. They did that because they had an actual encounter with God. And that is available to you and I to this very day. I don't want to just be a part of another cultural philosophy or some religious tradition. I want to know that God is real or not. And if God is not real, let's go get drunk and live a miserable life. But if God is genuine and if He is real and if He was real to those folk back in history, then I want this too. I'm not going to just settle for another theory. And so I cannot stand people who fight and argue about God and apologetics and try to like intellectually come to grips with this. Listen, God is real to the person who can humble himself, uh, open himself and just in meekness come to God. But when you come to interrogate God and you come to philosophize God, you are going to end up in the land of the, the knowledge of what is good versus evil and you will die. But if you can just put all that stuff aside and say, God, oh Jesus, I trust you, then God will zap you. And once you've been zapped in the Holy Ghost, You will gleefully give your life to God. See, us as preachers, we're persuading you too much to walk with God. I'm persuading you too much to live a righteous life, too much. If you have had an encounter with God, you will naturally be provoked to give your life to God. So, beloved, God is not interested in just being theoretical with you. And little life lessons, how to handle your money, how to be a little leader, how to have little relationships, how to, you know, be a good example, a goody tissue. God wants to be real. Acts chapter 3. God wants to be real, people. I want you to carefully notice something here with me. It's it's very subtle, but it is so meaningful. Verse 1, it says that this is after the Lord's resurrection and uh, after the Lord's ascension. And He has poured out His Spirit upon the ecclesia at that time. And uh, Peter and all the apostles are ministering. And here's an account of a miracle that takes place. I don't want to fixate on the miracle. Something actually predates the miracle. And that's what I want to hone in on. Not the lame, crippled man that's about to walk, but something that was just prior, that prefaces that miracle. Somehow we miss that preface. Verse 1. Peter and John, 
they go up to the temple uh, at the ninth hour to go pray. And they're, they're in the uh, prayer cycle of the Jewish people at that time. But every opportunity they had to get to the temple and tell people about Yeshua, the Messiah, they were there. And so prayer time is a time that a lot of Jews would gather and they capitalize on those prayer times to preach the gospel. So they go up to the temple and a certain man who had been paralyzed. And, and think of our spiritual lives. Think of us just, we may not be in the flesh crippled, but we're all born crippled into this world by sin. That is, we can't walk with God. We can't function with God. We're all really the crippled man sitting at this temple. And notice where he's going to sit. He sits at the house of God, at the gate, beautiful. He, he's in the religious flow of things, but he himself is a cripple. And religion can do nothing for him because religion has the appearance of godliness, but not the reality of godliness. But something's about to change here. So this man is sitting there. He's been lame from his mother's womb. That is, he was, he was birthed into a crippled kind of a life, if you will. And he's being carried there. He's always being carried by other people. He can't function for himself. So they lay him there at the door of the temple. Notice at the holy place there, the temple where the worship of God is. You might say he's a cripple in the land of religion. And religion can do nothing for this man. And so he's at the gate called Beautiful. Allegorically, if we just look a little bit into it, you can see everything is beautiful, squeaky clean. There was an actual gate that was gilded a little bit with gold. It's all glittery. It's all beautiful. And that's religion. Wow, look how beautiful. But I'm a cripple. And I see so many of us, we're sitting at the gate, beautiful in religion, but I cannot walk with God. And so he's asking for alms um, for people. He's a beggar. God is not this man's walk. God is not this man's source and supply. God is not Yahweh, Yireh, this man's provider. Man is his provider. Something's about to happen. Oh, it's good. Verse 3. Peter and John, they go up to the temple. Again, for them, it was not a religious obligation. It was an opportunity to speak something of the gospel of Jesus the Christ. So they began to uh, go up to the temple, and this man asks them, Please help me. Please help me. Please give. And Peter looked at this man. And he said to this man, look at us. And I have even done it here in this class. I have all of you stop and say, look at me. Oh. I can just imagine Peter gets to that man. See, that man is probably so in shame. He, he can't even lift up. There's no glory on him. He can't, he just shakes that can. Peter says, stop shaking that can. Look at me. The man dares to look up, and I want you to notice what's about to transpire. He turned his attention to them, accepting, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter says to this man, silver and gold I do not have. 
but what I do have, I give to you. Beloved, look at that. I don't have something material to give to you, but I actually do have something else. Something else in me I want to give to you. That is, God was real to Peter. God was inside of Peter. God was the substance of Peter and John. They did not give the man another life lesson or another truth or a, hey, you better pick yourselves up and, and, and get going with it, a self-help tool. He gave from his reality to that man. And that's what reality is all about. You will never through theories become a whole man. Reality will make you a whole man. And nor can you ever expect to be used of God if you are anorexic. If you do not have substance within you, you cannot be a blessing to somebody else. You may just come to the temple day in and day out and do the rituals with the rest of us, but you will never impart to another man unless you have been imparted to. And that's the heart of what we're trying to accomplish here and, and trust God for. God don't want to just be another life lesson to you. God wants to be substance so that you can say to people, I may not have this knowledge. I may not have that degree. I may not have this, this knowing of the text, but I have Christ and I give him to you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. So we fixate on the miracle. I say, no, no, forget the miracle for just a minute. Fixate on the substance that was tangible to them. From whence the miracle sprung. Amen. So God wants to be real to you. How then? In many, many, many different ways. Obviously all through the Spirit of Christ. But I, I submitted to you the other day, one of the first areas perhaps that God wants to actually be authentic, genuine, truthful, substantial in you is that He wants to provide for you and provide in a myriad of ways. And the greatest way in which He can provide for you is to just give Him, to give you Himself. Christ in me is the hope of glory. Not lessons in me, wisdom in me, or truth in me, but Christ, a man in me, is actually the hope of glory. Another thing that God wants to do for you is He wants to fight for you and break through and overcome and subdue the enemy uh, under your feet with His feet. Victory, overcoming. We as Christians ought not to just sit at a temple of some religious institution all day long, remain crippled. Sooner or later, God wants to bring breakthrough so you can get up and live. I've come to give you this life and give it to you more abundantly. God wants to be your shepherd. A very practical way to experience God is to obey His leading. Let Him be the Lord of your life. That is, if he says left, if he says right, if he says stop, if he says go, let everything about your life be filtered through his shepherding. And cultivate maybe a little shepherding relationship with your Lord and, and even call him, oh Lord, my pastor, do you want me today to do this? Begin to submit everything about your life to the pastoring heart of God. Instead of just carting off into a direction 
and then asking him to bless what you have premeditated you're going to do. Instead, come mendicant before God, open-handed, open-hearted, humble and meek. And say, Lord, what is on your heart today? My pastor, my shepherd, my leader. And if you could experience the leadership of God, it's an amazing experience. And I have this all over my own life. From the day that I met God at age 17, just prior to age 17, I've genuinely experienced the pastoring, shepherding, leadership heart of God. Again, in that moment, I could not understand many of the leadings of God and the people that He would bring into your life and why He would take a detour here and a detour there. But I've learned that when I cannot with my eye discern the ways of God, I have learned that my heart can trust God because He is always faithful. And God has provided for me. I, I, I wish I had days to tell you the stories in which God has miraculously provided for us. You cannot convince me there's not a God and that He is somehow absent. I have the experience of His provision. I have the experience of His victory. I have the experience of His leadership. And it is it's wonderful. Another experience is that God wants to be shalom to you. So there's your notes. God wants to be peace to you. Shalom is a Hebrew word for peace. I don't want us to turn there necessarily to the book of Judges, but there was a man by the name of Gideon. And we can psychoanalyze Gideon a little bit as an anxious uh, kind of a person. Um, an intimidated kind of a person. If we come to Gideon, we can really see there that Gideon is a man whose identity was so insecure. Um, from, the, from the passages there in Judges, um, Gideon was a fearful man, insecure man. And God obviously would show up in Gideon's life. You may know the story. And God would call him a mighty man of valor. That is, God's definition of this man was wholly other than his own definition of himself. He had an identity crisis, etc., etc. But if you look there at your notes, in uh, Judges 6, verse 24, God speaks a very particular word to this anxious, doubting, skeptical, insecure man. And he says to him, peace be to you. That is, shalom. Do not fear you shall not die. That was God's word to him. And somehow that word pierced that man. And he builds an altar to the Lord, an altar to Yahweh, and he calls that altar Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. And somehow something of God was baptized into this man. And that insecurity... And that anxiety dissipated instantly with something of the nature of God that came into the man. And I want to talk to you about that nature of God for just a minute. And if you read the context there in uh, Judges, you'll see that the circumstance didn't change. The Midianites were still coming after uh, 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 the Israelites. 
circumstantially nothing changed. Gideon did not build an altar because he had a breakthrough circumstantially. He built an altar to commemorate that moment because something of God came into this man as reality. And it settled his anxiety. And it settled his, uh, his fears and his intimidations and insecurities. And all of a sudden, this man who's just there at the threshing floor, threshing out the wheat, all of a sudden partners with God. So this man has an experience with God. Oh, he gets baptized in peace. And all of a sudden, when there's peace, there's life. There's energy. There's confidence. There's security. And it's just something psychology cannot do for you. There is this amazing thing. Of course, we don't know how it happened, but just God zapped this man with peace. Shalom. So God whittles down the army so that Gideon can say, really, this victory was because of God, not because of our strength. Then God, like He does with many men and women of God, He changes the strategy of warfare so that Gideon and his army don't depend on their training and their warfare skill and their uh, you know, techniques, but they can really trust God. So God says to him, okay, we're going to fight the Midianites with 300 men, and we're going to do it a little bit differently. Actually, when we go to Israel, we take people to the spring where Gideon's men drank um, with their hand versus the other straight out of the spring. That spring is still in existence to this day. It's called Gideon's Spring. So there's the 300 men, and here's what God told them. Take a clay pot, all 300 men, a jar that represents your humanity, prophetically speaking. But nevertheless, take a clay pot, then you put the oil lamp, the olive oil lamp, inside of the clay jar. That is a clear picture. Oil and that lamp always represents the Holy Spirit, God. And we have this symbolism a little bit in the, in the New Testament that we are a temple and inside is the Spirit of God. And we are an earthen jar, a clay vessel, and inside is a treasure. And that treasure is God. So they're prophetically going to war with a, an earthen jar, a lamp in it, and a trumpet, a shofar. And I can just imagine, if you don't have the peace of God in that moment when God gives you this absurd assignment, this peace that passes all understanding, I know me. Uh, excuse me, God, where's the sword? Uh, no sword for you today. A trumpet and a pot and an oil lamp. We're going to war. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty absurd. So here goes Gideon and his 300 men. And in the middle of the night, they sneak into the uh, Midianite camp. Stealth, James Bond style um, warfare. And they have their pot, and they have their trumpet. Then God spoke to uh, the folk and said, blow the trumpet. And then what they did is they broke that earthen jar. So the Midianites are sleeping. All of a sudden, they hear this trumpet, and they look around, and then they break the jar. They break the skin. They break the shell that hides the glory. And all of a sudden, the Midianites wake up and it's just poof, spotlight all about them, light all around them. And it was such a confusion because of this light 
that they started stabbing each other and they wiped out each other. And that's how that miracle story takes place. And in it, prophetically, you can learn a lot of lessons. The trumpet is to announce and the clay jar is my flesh that gets broken so that the glory of God, the testimony of God, confounds the enemy. The light, yeah. So this man would not have gone to war in this silly, absurd manner if peace was not inside of this man. And that's how Isaiah 55 speaks about this. We'll look at this maybe in just a minute. God wants to lead you forth in peace because He's going to ask the absurd of you, the impossible, the illogical, and, but He wants to baptize you in peace because most of us, we will argue and fight God's methodology and God doesn't want to fight with you. He just wants to baptize you in peace. And it's that peace that can become a reality to all of us. Amen? Amen? If you don't have it already, you can have it, and we can actually increase in Yahweh Shalom.